Hey, this is Matt Rosenberg, and you're listening to The Night Nerd. Welcome to The Night Nerd Podcast. I'm your host, Lance. It's Wednesday, so we're going to talk some comic books. This week, we're about to hit 1,000 shows. We're like two shows away from 1,000. And I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate comics and celebrate a thousand shows than have the owner of my local comic shop, Robert, um, well, Robert's the owner, Star, is the local comic shop, have him on the show. He's been on a few times. Um, He's always a lot of fun. So we sat down, we really dove into comics, everything from Alan Moore to digital comics to X-Men, everything in between. Uh, It was a, a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, we're here with Robert from Star Comics. Robert, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Uh, first off, thanks for being on. This is a big week, and I definitely wanted to have like some of my favorite people on, and you were one of my favorite people. Oh, well, thank you. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, you know, you've been on the show a few times before. Some of our long-term listeners hopefully remember you. Well, it's, everything. Been, it's been a long time, so they'd have to be long-term <laughs> listeners or have really good memories. Yeah, it, well, that's one thing. Since last we recorded in your store you're in the new store now yeah yeah so that that shows how long it's been as we've been in our new location almost two years wow should have you on more often then (laughs) yeah it's all right you've seen me since then you just we just haven't recorded yeah yeah we've been in a new spot um almost two years ago uh we set up to move january of 2018 is when we officially moved um, but it's been a great move. We're, we're in a bigger space, uh, a little bit newer, a little bit nicer. Um, we really like it. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I love the layout. It's, I mean, I love the old store. You know, it was what we grew up on. It was mm-hmm. great. But this definitely feels has that new, modern, bright, shiny uh, comic store. And then also, you know, you've expanded to the collectibles and your graphic novel section is massive now. Like it's nice out in the open. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, really neat. One of the things I want to talk about, you know, being in this new store is Mm -hmm. kind of a, we actually, I talked about it on the show when you moved, uh, it's kind of a rebirth or a continuation, you know, and I, it lined up right after or a few months after DC did their big rebirth. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's kind of taking all the everything that made the old stuff good and coming forward. But as a comic book retailer, mm-hmm. how do you feel about rebirths and reboots and new number ones? Um rebirths, reboots, number ones. Man, I wish I had a really easy answer for you cuz I don't. Um I don't like reboots for the sake of reboots. I think that's fairly universal. I don't think I'm unique in saying that. Uh, I know that from a money and a numbers standpoint, they see that a number one sells better than a number 77. So naturally, if their sales are going down, they're trying to get a bump. They're like, let's go to this number one. Even if they don't change creative teams, even if it's not structured to be that way for a really particular reason. But I also... If it's with structure, I don't have a problem with new number ones. I, I think giving comics the, the sense of, of seasons is not necessarily a bad idea uh, yeah. for, for the long term. Um, I know you can do that within the confines of uh, continuing your numbering. You know, 
you could just consider number 617 to be season whatever mm-hmm. but i don't know giving structure is important i think when you're telling serialized stories but um what i think hurts is doing those type of changes or gimmicks just for the sake of the change um anything that's done for the sake of numbers in art usually never works out to your advantage. Um, it might fix some short-term issues if you're short on capital or you're trying to fix some things, but taking big shortcuts when it comes to creativity will never mount you the long-term success of, um, I mean, the, the, the example, sorry, I'm really long-winded. The example that I always go to is uh, Old Man Logan, right? When Mark Miller wanted to tell that story, Marvel actually said, okay, well, we'll give you a miniseries. He's like, no, I don't want a miniseries. And I'm like, well, okay, we'll, re- we'll renumber Wolverine to do this. And he's like, no, put it in the book. He, even he knew at the time, as much as he likes to write for movies and as much as that seems to be the, his motivation, and he's been very successful at it, he knew that he wanted to write this story and the idea that most comic fans remembered and himself included, and that's... It was really cool when Craven's Last Hunt was in, you know, just Amazing Spider-Man. It was just the next issue and next storyline of Amazing Spider-Man and crossover in the other Spider-Man titles. It was really cool when Batman Year One, it didn't renumber. It just, yes, it was a post-crisis thing. It had to happen. They were trying to redo the origin. They got Frank Miller and Dave Mazzuchelli to do this amazing thing. They didn't number one it at the time. So your counter-argument there could be, okay, well, it was, you know, 1980-whatever, so times are different. You're not wrong, but at the same time, I don't think that it's harder for me to market a book that has names like, uh, you know, Mark Miller and Steve Scrooge or Frank Miller and Dave Mazzuchelli on it, whether it's a number 401 or whether it's a number one. Right. And I... I actually kind of talked about that on a recent episode is when they do the miniseries and the standalones that to me makes it seem almost disposable continuity wise, you know, they can go back and say, Oh, well that was a miniseries. That was just for fun. Whereas if it's in the actual numbering and in the books, you're a little, you have to pay a little more attention to it, I guess, as far as legacy goes. Yeah. I mean, in, I understand also how one shots and miniseries work. Sometimes, sometimes they're just tabled scripts, just like it is at a it, you know at a, at a production company for television or, or movies. Um, they buy these scripts. They've they've handled these scripts for years, and they shelve them. And occasionally they'll bring them out because they think, oh, this will coincide with another project that another studio is doing. So let's go ahead and get our volcano movie out. Let's go ahead and get our, you know, dinosaur research movie out. Let's go ahead and and do this because the other studio is doing it. Now, I'm not saying comics do that. I think that they do shelve scripts. And I think that sometimes they'll see a project, a creator, or a character that is getting an extra push, getting some extra momentum. And they think, okay, well, this is a good time to now do a side project with them, get an extra book out. It's, but it's for the sake of numbers. That's mm-hmm. the problem. And anytime you do it for the sake of numbers, you're only tapping into the pockets to the people that already buy your product. You're not actually going out and expanding your market in any way, shape, or form as a publisher when you do that type of printing. You are taking the people that you already know, 
have dedicated purchases towards your product no matter where they get them from and you're just tapping into their pocket just a little bit more and eventually people who are not looking long term people who are short-sighted what happens when you do that when you're just tapping into people's pockets eventually you're going to lose a percentage of them mm -hmm. they're going you know some a lot of people will say a number one is a good jumping off point um, well, so is adding to that Spider-Man's fans, you know, obsession. Um, I'm Spider-Man fan number one uh, is going to eventually, <laughs> I mean, I would like to sit them down and say, I don't know what the, you know, what, what screw is loose that makes you an all or nothing person. I get it. But at the same time, it doesn't have to be that way. But that's not the reality. The re reality is they convince themselves at one point or another that they have to have all the product. And when all the product becomes unaffordable, what do they do? They don't get a second or third job. They drop the product. I mean, because, you know, let's be honest, at the end of the day, it's it's not food. It's not clothing. It's not shelter. Um, it's not your basic amenities. It's, it's disposable as well. So you're only tapping into disposable income when you're when you're talking about comics and entertainment. Um so that's a really long answer to your yeah. very short question. Well, and I know usually when they do a new number one, like I, I have some friends who didn't pick up the most, not the most recent X-Men number one, but the year ago X-Men number one because it had like an $8 price tag on a mm -hmm. $4 book. Yeah. I mean, and I I look at page count and I can justify it because, I, you know, I look at, okay, you're paying twice the normal price of the book, but you have four times as many pages. Sure. So there's more work going into it there's there's more writing there's more art but and like i said i personally know people who don't look at it that way they just say oh this book is now twice as much for one time just because it has a number one when in eight months they're going to go back to the legacy numbering so I, I get that i you know i understand where people are coming from but well, you know me i'm a, a sucker for all the things. So here's the issue when they do it over and over again. So you mentioned the previous X-Men reboot, and currently we're on an X-Men reboot, for those that aren't aware. Um, we're on another X-Men reboot, and yeah, it's only been one and a half, two years or so. It has not been that long. Well, let's say that, just for the sake of argument, you know, let's say that they decided House of X and Powers of Ten, that they actually wanted that to just be within the confines of continuity, very akin to when Grant Morrison took over the X-Men. They didn't renumber for that one. They just continued the current X-Men numbering. So if they wanted to at this point, they really couldn't because they've renumbered it so many times now. Legacy numbering to kick it off wouldn't have hurt it. I, honestly, I mean, in my personal opinion, I have no evidence or or, or any scientific data to back that up, but... I think just having the names, having Hickman attached to it, having it be a big project and having them make a big marketing deal out of it um, and then have the creative backing to, to, to back up that, that, that marketing push, um, it still would have worked. But because we've renumbered it, you know, three times in the past 10 years, five times in the past 12 years, whatever that number may be. You can't even play that game anymore. You can't even go back to my argument with the old man Logan and go, well, no, it, it should have worked just putting it in the book because now you can't even do that. So you you really have made given yourself no choice as a publishing house that you have to renumber whenever you're going to go through 
major creative changes or major character changes or something of that nature. Um, and I'm, I'm not against it. I just, it needs to be with purpose. There has to be a reason to do it. So with the most recent one, there, there was a reason, but the last one, obviously it's, you know, it's already gone by the wayside and it's like 12 forgotten. months, eight <laughs> months, 12 months. And, but on, so on the flip side of that, mm -hmm. you had the race to a thousand. You know, Detective Comics yeah. hit a thousand, Action hit a thousand, and then all of a sudden, Marvel Comics hit a thousand. <laughs> and the legacy numbering, I remember I picked up the Avengers No Road Home miniseries, which was enjoyable. Uh -huh. It was a miniseries, but it also had legacy numbering. So mm -hmm. it had, again, you know, it's to get to that issue 800, that yeah. 900. And I, I, they're trying to play both sides of the same coin, it feels like, as far as, oh, it's a new number one, but oh, it's also number 800, but... Sure. So, from the standpoint, I mean, I, I've i done this for too long, where I, I come at it from a standpoint of retail. I come at it from the standpoint of what is it like to order the product, and what is it like to sell the product, not necessarily consume the product. And maybe, so, maybe I need to be corrected. I assume on the side of consuming the product, that as long as the product is good, it really doesn't matter what packaging it comes in. As long as it's a quality product, there's nothing wrong with putting on the front of something, even if you haven't numbered it as such. This is the, I mean, just like the thousandth episode of your, of your podcast. They're not going to, not everything always has things in numbers. Maybe it's in titles, maybe it's in arcs, maybe it's in seasons. But you can always announce, oh, by the way, everybody, this is our 100th episode. This is our, you know, 500th issue. Uh, uh, and we're going to celebrate. I'm all for the anniversary celebration. And you can still do the anniversary celebrations without having that, that long ongoing number. But to go back from the side of consuming the product, as long as the product is good, you're happy. You're okay with that. And if somebody tells you this is an anniversary issue, I mean you know, short of the internet, yeah, you'll, you might dig a little bit and try to find out why are they charging me an extra $5 for this one? But if they put a lot of really cool creators in there and have some awesome pinups and have some really fun stories, you're not going to complain too much. I don't think from the consumer side, from selling the product side, then, then I kind of see where they play with things and they're playing with things to try to get sales. And that say, as I've told you and probably in previous interviews that we've done, I am technically Marvel and DC's customer, not you. Mm -hmm. You are my customer. You are you know you are the internet's customer. You are the the store your local comic shop's customer. But I, the local comic shop, I am Marvel and DC's customer. So I'm actually the person person they're selling this product to. Um, and from that standpoint, they really do play with the numbers a lot. The numbers are important to them because that's how we keep up with that stuff on our shelves. That's how we keep up with the data that we need to, to order the product that we order. Um, I mean, even the book market does it, even if it doesn't necessarily say on the spine of a YA novel that this is book three in a series of six. I guarantee you at the ordering process, it is very clear, book three. It says it all over the ordering process. That's important for libraries and bookstores and all of that type of thing because a lot of those people that are ordering that product, they don't read everything that comes in. So they have to know what series they're following, what, what they're stocking on their shelves, and what they're, you know, what they're, they're putting out um, that's new. 
Comics have that weird thing where we've just grown so accustomed that it has to have that number on the front or it has to have that number on the spine. How can we live without it? How else will we know what order that this goes in? And that's because of the long-term serialized fiction aspect of comics that's, that's gone for decades, plural, um, which very few mediums can say that. There, there's a lot of serialized fiction out there, soap operas being the primary, the primary one, but... Do you know what season Days of Our Lives is on? I you always don't. think it's the yeah. last one. <laughs> I just keep I waiting mean, for the last you one. You don't, and I don't either. You know the story arcs and you know the eras, but you don't know the season. Numbering doesn't become as important because they've been on for so long, but comics has that curse of having that number on the front yeah. and, and that number being important to, to how they how they publish and promote their product. Um I just want the content to be good. I want the consumer to be happy. I want people to read good product. And I know the creators do too. Creators, editors, and uh, up to the publishing, any level, people that have created comics, I believe nobody goes out of their way. You don't You don't sit down right now and go, I'm going to just record the most half-assed podcast I can today. I'm just not feeling it. <laughs> but... Not today. Not today. Not this interview, the, no. <laughs> you know, maybe on another day. But, I mean, nobody goes into a creative process. Now, you may come out of a creative process going, oh, wow, that wasn't my best work. I yeah. just, I wasn't feeling it. It didn't happen. That, I, I, that probably happens, you know, a lot. But nobody goes into a project going, this is going to be, this is our paycheck project, guys and gals. I don't think. I mean... Not at this level. Uh, comics don't sell enough for, for anybody to just say, let's do paycheck comics. Yeah. Um, movies, TV, different story, but comics, not so much. Uh, but then you get to the bean counting of it, and you realize that a lot of how they market this stuff um, interferes with the creative process. And I think that they want to have a good product, too, just like I want the reader on my side as somebody who sells it to them. I want them to, to experience it and go, wow, this was really good. I really enjoyed this. I want more. I know they do too. Um, it just doesn't always come across that way when you start looking at the business side of it. Well, you brought up a, a couple of good points. Uh, one, you know, you talked about you're the customer and in, anybody who doubts that look at previews and it's retailer incentive covers. It's not Lance incentive covers or even, Texas incentive. Well, that one book, the the what was it? Avengers did a state incentive cover, but ninety nine point nine nine percent it's retailer incentive covers, and that's you have to order a certain amount or things like that. But the other thing you talked about is as long as it's a good product, and I think that is one thing that comics benefit uh, from is not every time, but most of the time, if it's a good story, even if it didn't necessarily sell great i can come in and get the trade i can come in and find a collected edition of it whereas you know that's kind of if somebody recommends a movie well i didn't see it in theaters but i'll pick it up on dvd yeah and yeah. i think there's kind of a, a parallel there of oh well i didn't pick it up but everybody says superman year one was great and we and, went through that era in the early 2000s and that was uh, i know we did this in an interview previously uh, and and because i've coined it as in my opinion a golden era that will never get recognized as a golden era of comics and it will always be so because the publishers at that stretching point at that breaking point where they're like it's it's this or nothing else i have nothing to fall back on 
this has to succeed or we're finished, gave, handed the keys to the creators and said, create, mm-hmm. just entertain and do, do, do what you can to make the audience happy. Um, tell the stories that you want to tell and let's keep this going. And the exploration during that time was part of how do we keep this on the shelves? How do we keep access to this stuff? And people started to write for the trade. Now I think that's gone too far in that direction because at the time it was working really well because we had also pared down our monthly titles so much from all the publishers. Everybody had intentionally pared down to the bare basics of what they needed. Mm -hmm. They needed one X-Men title on the shelf. They needed just one Spider-Man title on the shelf. We were down to just two Batman titles on the shelf. Everybody took the care to eliminate all the extra unnecessary stuff. Mm -hmm. The miniseries, the annuals disappeared. And that was with announcement, too. That was not like, oh, whatever happened to annuals? They just kind of went away. Remember those? No, they said in press releases, we are doing away with the annual and the miniseries. We want to concentrate our efforts and our energy on the main series that we're putting out and make sure that it's the best product that we have. And that translated really well into exactly what you're talking about, creating trades and hardcovers and creating shelf material that could now be consumed by an audience larger than just your weekly comic bookstore visitor. It could be followed by your bookstore visitor, your library visitor. Um, unfortunately, what became your internet visitor. Um, but that, that was with intent. That was with purpose. They're like, we need this stuff creatively to live and to live much longer than the week that we're expecting it to survive on the shelf. Um, we have so much bloat now in the comics industry. We really could go back to the not everything needs to be reprinted. They still have that old mantra that everything gets an ISBN number, no matter what it is. Everything's going to get that ISBN so we can get it on a library shelf, so so we can get it in a bookstore. And man, there's a lot of material that doesn't need to, A, it doesn't need to be printed at first. Mm -hmm. Nobody goes in, like I said, my belief, nobody goes in to make a bad product, but it happens. And when it happens... You don't even necessarily have to pretend it never happened. You just don't need to print it again. <laughs> right. Well, and recently, you know, DC, I know uh, this year, last year, they came out and were like, we are cutting back on our trades and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then they published five versions of Watchmen this year. Yeah. And I, I think that's another thing because uh, I'm pretty sure you and I have talked about it. I know for sure off mic. Um, I'm... I'm not a Watchmen fan. Like, I, okay, I get what it is. I respect what it is. But, and I think now we're at a time where people are seeing it as not the holy grail that, especially outsiders, you know, people that don't come into a comic shop all the time think it is. But, you know, I, I think that we are kind of, from what I see, you know, and I'm not on the business end of it, but I, I'm in here every week. I, I see the all the titles and whatnot that... It feels very mid '90s, late '90s again, where before the oh, the collapse, so. where you know you had at least a dozen X Men books. You know, Beast had a book, and Forge had a book, and there was Blue, Gold, Green, Excalibur, and everything like that. And mm-hmm. I think that you know, with that, they're they're juggling. Hey, here's a bunch of new stuff, but also don't forget because really. 
even when Watchmen came out, there weren't a whole lot of miniseries. You know, you it was either a one issue arc or it was Chris Claremont in a twenty year arc. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, where do you think that that line that between them saying, "Hey, check out Young Animal, our new stuff," but also don't forget we have the Killing Joke and we have Watchmen. I mean, I, I keep using DC because Marvel doesn't quite have that kind of stuff in their library, but. I, I don't have access to their numbers. I Thinking about it from a business side, the only thing that I can think of is that it's en- it, it generates enough revenue on their part because we're talking Amazon numbers. When we start talking things with ISBNs, we're talking Amazon numbers. Amazon numbers, and really, don't forget the library system. The library system is huge. It is a massive, massive form of income for publishers. So we have the library system and we have Amazon, and those things are vital to publishing, period. So it would be foolish for DC and Marvel to not pay attention to that. So that that is just a straight-up business decision on their part, and I don't, uh, I don't begrudge them that at all. Um, tightening up the line would be great. Not every, and things go out of print. Not everything stays in print forever. Mm-hmm. That That is true, too. But... Uh, as far as the Watchmen thing goes, um, you you bring up a good point, and I would I would love to to have it. Um, we need uh, some time because the series is on HBO right now. Uh, there seemed to be a little bit of controversy about uh, uh, Alan Moore recently uh, due to some some internet uh, uh, doings and goings ons. Um, I'd love to have an actual sit down with you about. Alan Moore and Watchmen and why it genuinely is probably one of the most important pieces in fiction in American fiction written by a British writer <laughs> and and why it is mm-hmm. and how it's changed not necessarily everything for the better either but how it has changed the landscape of the place that we're sitting in right mm-hmm. now for sure but how misunderstood the creator himself is and how more in tune, I think he is with the average comic fan than they understand. Um, but that's, a, I guess that's going to be, a, that's going to have to be <laughs> well, a different conversation. That's going to be a big, yeah. <laughs> and we'll throw, I mean, like I said, we can throw Frank Miller in there too, because I think the Dark Knight and even as much as I'm a Daredevil fan, his Daredevil stuff is, I don't know, because to me it brought in 80s doom and gloom. Those guys are they, a lot of... they did, they did, and so we'll take the tangent, and and I won't <laughs> I won't preach too much, but I I think the best example that I can use is let's let's say music, something that people universally love. So you can listen to a piece of music or have an artist, and people ask you why is that artist so so special? They don't seem to be that special, and a lot of times it's really hard to explain, especially if it's an artist that you're talking to somebody who didn't grow up in that era. And what you have to do is say, don't listen to the catalog of, and I'm, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go hipster with you. Don't listen to the catalog of David Bowie and just David Bowie. Listen to the catalog of David Bowie and the era that each one of those albums came out. So you listen to a certain album. If an album came out in, in 64, listen to it with other albums or songs that were in the top 164. Everybody who likes to go to the Beatles and say, the Beatles are so overrated, the Beatles are so overrated. I think what's happening sometimes with people is, yes, by today's standards, they may feel the Beatles are so overrated because people have copied their style of music for so long that almost, that Beatles music almost sounds derivative. 
and you're always going to gravitate towards the era of music that you grew up with. So your bands are going to be your favorite, and that's totally cool. I get that. But if you don't listen to that music in the era that it was written, you don't quite get the sense of why it's so good or why it's so influential or why it's so important. So if you listen to Black Sabbath in the year that, that Black Sabbath was released, you realize how crazy influential it yeah. was. If you listen to to early Led Zeppelin, minus the fact that they stole so many, so many blues artists <laughs> riffs and songs, but you see why it's so influential queen and Bowie and all of, all of those ones that are kind of getting their due nowadays. Um, you, you see why, but you have to listen to that music in its time. Right. And then when you listen to it next to, you know, the, the, the top 10 and Perry Cuomo and other things that are playing at the time, you're like, Oh, this is why people were so infatuated with this. It didn't sound like anything else at the time. Movies are no different and comics really are no different. So reading something like a Frank Miller's Daredevil next to a handful of comics of the same time period, you'll start to get the sense this really stood out on the mm -hmm. shelf. This really was not doing things that, that people at that time were expecting comics to do. And the fact that it, it pushed those boundaries so much... Um, brought new writers, new artists, new lovers of the medium that didn't even, you know, that were still thinking this was like uh, Richie Rich and Casper and Archie. And I mean, no problems with any of those products at all. They're all really great products, but people always still considered some comics to be like that mm -hmm. until they saw or read. Frank Miller's Daredevil. They were still funny books. They were still I mean, funny books to a lot of people at that time. And the fact that they could go back as adults in the 1980s and revisit something that they hadn't seen since they were children and go, oh, wow, this is this is telling a really sophisticated story. Um, but it's all relative, right? A sophisticated story compared to what? Right. It's it's all based. I mean, yes, they they're not reading Herman Melville. They're not comparing. You're not reading Frank Miller's Daredevil and comparing it to Moby Dick. Uh, you're comparing <laughs> you're comparing it to to Richie Rich. Yeah, yeah it, it's or, or Superman or Lois Lane in a fat suit and yeah, trying to, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, your 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 comparisons are, and it is not disparaging the funny book era, which I'm a huge fan of and love, but. It really stood out in comparison to what it was being compared to. Uh, so, sorry, that that's the tangent. So, I'll, I'll get. I, I feel like there's still more there. We can we can we can dive in sometime and talk about. But yeah, so when we talk about the bloating uh, mm -hmm. of the industry, you know, and I think that they they know that, and they try and do little things to alleviate. I think. I, acupuncture it's how i like to imagine it you know like you have this giant body that is comics and especially the big two marvel and dc and to a lesser but still pretty big extent like image and stuff and they're just like well we'll try and ease a little pain here and here and i feel like digital comics i know that's a bad word to say inside a local comic shop but you know i think that's something that they were hoping might not only bring people into the medium a little more but I, I think, I mean, personally, I don't, I have very few digital comics. I just, I like the feel of a comic. Um, and it wasn't until a year ago I even started redeeming the ones in the back of the Marvel comics because I was like, oh, I'll never read those. But if I'm paying for them, I might as, mm -hmm. might as well redeem them. Um, and 
I think, and if you can answer this biasly or unbiasedly, mm-hmm. I think digital comics have hurt the medium more than they've helped it. Okay, so first of all, I wish I had some type of paper in front of me or evidence to 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 either refute or agree with that statement. The problem is none of the companies have ever had to divulge digital sales, digital reach, any data whatsoever regarding digital numbers. Not like they do physical sales. So and why is that? Do we know why that is? Because like Netflix doesn't report their numbers exactly, either. Exactly, because they're not required to. So it, <laughs> it's as simple as that. And we the, sold a lot. The problem. So it's all anecdotal. Anecdotal, because I've been doing this for so long, and I do have comparisons, I would agree 100% that digital has hurt the publication side of comics to an, to an extent. And it probably is a factor in the creative side as well, because it doesn't cost as much. You just have to pay creator. You have to get the product to a finished level, but you don't have to get it to a level to print, which is an added cost, because then comes distribution and all the other things that come with that. It goes to the server, so to speak, and then out to the user. So your resistance to projects that may be too experimental or too off-brand or too odd, you may you might be more willing to explore them. You might also be willing to cash grab in the same instance where you know you have those shelved scripts. You're like, yeah, we can let's just make a batch of a dozen digital and get them out and see 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 what you know, see what hits, see what people respond to. Because they have access to those sales, that that sales data. They have access to those clicks. But it's just anecdotal. But I would say it has hurt. And I think it it hurts on the level that any medium that has experienced a physical format, any entertainment medium that's been physical that has gone digital has its major, major growing pains. And comics, are they have still yet, I think, to come to terms with the growing pains of, of digital and how digital works. Who is it for? How is it consumed? Um, I completely agree, but I can't, like I said, I can't confirm or, or deny any of that because they don't have to divulge any of that information. Well, and talking about growing pains right now, we're really seeing that because I remember when Netflix first started doing digital, mm-hmm. um, Hey kids, Netflix used to only be physical <laughs> copies. I don't know if you knew that, uh, but there was, a, and this is a real hot button topic right now to the point where like BBC was reporting on it that. You know, when Netflix went digital, movie piracy was a big thing. Right now, there's this whole bit. Donny Cates is like on a revenge mission tracking people down for illegally downloading comics. I know it's always been there. Sure. As long as there's been the internet. But back in the day, it was, oh, employee at store X took a picture, or most of the time, yeah. and uploaded. But now, with everything being digital, it's just, there's pirate Ooh, shark left, yeah. left and right, and... I think that's one of the growing pains because that unfortunately is going to, you know, we saw it, like I said, we saw it with movies and TV when they went digital. And now the comics are kind of hitting that plateau that we're seeing it. Uh, I personally, not words I can say on my podcast because I try and keep it not rated R. Um, I think it's dumb to download illegally for numerous reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't want to support it, don't support it. But Again, if it's readily available, 
in today's day and age, um, I'm not going to say generation because it's all ages, but today's oh, sure. day and age, people are going to do it. And I think, you know, whereas before digital, it was it not being readily available made you, even if it was going into a bookstore, bookstore. Because mm -hmm. I remember the days of the comic racks. I mean, sure. the grocery store, the drugstore, everybody had comic racks. And that's, there, there are people who, my kid will never see a comic rack. I mean, unless if you have one set up in here <laughs> one day, but, and I think in my lifetime, the past 40 ish years, it seems like comics has roller coastered a lot and done a lot of spaghetti on the wall, see what sticks. Sure. And I think digital is part of that. Uh, but all that kind of coming back around is, do you think there are, other tactics. I mean, even I'm looking at a TKO book right now. You know, they release mm -hmm. in seasons. We talked yeah. about seasons. Both on your side of the table and this side of the table, do you see some that work better than others? Or is it does it change too fast to really get a feel for some of the, in the stuff? In the current marketplace, you're absolutely right. I think it changes too fast to even get a feel for it. I mean, it just it just has. And I think, why does it feel faster now? Maybe a good question. I think why it feels faster now may just have to do with product explosion. There's mm -hmm. just too much product to follow. It's, it's fairly difficult. And we have culturally determined in a very short period of time that the consumption of entertainment has... I mean, it's changed. I mean, you know, we're 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 in a binge era, and may we will probably always be in a binge era. But you know, you never know. Right. But we're definitely in a binge era, and and when you're in a binge era of consumption, uh, when it comes to entertainment, it, they have to pump it out faster, right? I mean, it takes them six to twelve months to create a project, and it takes you twenty four hours to consume it. I mean, yeah. if if you if you used food as an analogy for that, <laughs> you just wouldn't make food. Mm. You, you would just stop. Um, but it, so it has to be profitable at that pace. Mm -hmm. And the only way it's profitable at that pace is if everybody on the planet consumes that one project that you make or you just have to start making a ton of projects and hope that a percentage of them get consumed at a certain percent for you to start making money. So it just encourages you, I think, to, to just start pumping out even more crap. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a problem, like not a problem with being culture, but this, my belief is, and this is just from what I've noticed as far as the shows I watch, you know, my weekly shows versus Netflix and shows mm -hmm. and things if a product is good enough, I don't mind waiting that week or two to see it. But there's been a lot of shows that when they first came out, they lost me after one or two episodes. Mm -hmm. But if I sit and watch it all in one sitting, you can kind of gloss over some of the faults. You don't have as much time sure. to reflect on it. And I think if a product is is good enough, and that's not to say that you know these this Tom King's biweekly Batman hasn't been, for the most part, great. But I, I think if you're binging and you're pumping stuff out, one, you know, that, that writer goes from writing 20 pages a month to now they're doing 40 pages a month. Yeah. And I, I think binge culture 
allows and encourages an inferior product. I mean, when I say inferior, I don't mean just utter garbage, but I mean, sure, there, you know, it puts more stress and everything. And I know I would rather, now I'm not talking, you know, image comic wait time, mm-hmm. I mean, eight years between an issue, <laughs> but, and I think if the product's good enough, and that, that goes back, you know, what we've been saying, if the product's good enough, it'll find a way to thrive. And with comics, you know, you, in movies, you always hear, oh, it's a cult classic. You sure. know, nobody saw Rocky Horror when it came out, but now... Yeah, of course. And it, cult classics have a very niche market. Well, comics are already a niche market. Yeah. And so cult classics within comics isn't... I, I mean, with the exception of a couple of things, it's not really a thing because yeah you have your watchmen they things. are rare it, it it's like a cap wolf mm. it's it's like did you ever read the one where captain america turns into a wolf that's a cult classic mm. it's not a classic it's not a great story but it's just silly enough to be lovable um but you're right cult classics don't really exist too much in comics um but yeah i i think that it does it does encourage an inferior product it makes it a little tougher it puts a lot of stress on the creative process and I mean, the elephant in the room about that particular discussion and the pace that this stuff is coming out at is look at Doomsday Clock. Doomsday Clock still isn't finished. It's 12 issues, two plus years in the making. Technically, the beginning of Rebirth, if you if you want to get really, really technical. Yeah, which they've already dropped Rebirth which they've already off dropped. a lot of books. Yeah, so, um, yeah, they've dropped it off of everything. But Doomsday Clock still isn't finished. One issue left to go. And it was supposed to be a tent pole essentially that center tent pole for what everything in DC comics was supposed to revolve around. Mm -hmm. And since it's taken so long and we don't live in an era that everybody can wait for anything creatively, they all had to move on editorially and creatively. They've, they've come up with, you know, four or five different things in the meantime. And now doomsday clock is completely irrelevant. So as a completed project, it's going to be completely irrelevant. Mm. I'm not saying it's not going to be good. I'm just saying, even without reading it, it's going to be irrelevant. Right. It's not going to have any staying power with the company or the company's product whatsoever. Yeah, because I know like, the big thing was nobody, because of Doomsday Clock, nobody was supposed to touch the JSA or Legion. And now we have both of those. You know, we had no choice. (laughs) We've we've hired creators (laughs) and we've spent money and editors have had to redo this. And oh, this Batman who laughs thing, this dark metal really took off. It looks like that's what we're going to go with from now on. And they just couldn't wait. And that, you know, binge culture didn't create that, but it definitely enhanced it. Mm -hmm. It definitely you made a big mistake in this current era and how you have to create this product that the consumer wants to consume in five seconds uh, by saying, yes, it's going to take us two years to finish this. Uh, by the way, everything is going to revolve around this. You guys are going to love it. Well, they very well may have. They just, we unfortunately did not have the the patience to, mm-hmm. to actually follow through. With I mean, it. if I wasn't so far into it, you know, because I'm one of those people, if I know something, if I'm in something and then they're like, oh, well, it's only me 12 issues and I'm four issues, five issues in. Well, well, I might as well me, finish it. Don't get me wrong. It it, it may end very, uh, very succinctly. It may do a, a very have a, a nice fine uh, uh, point on it and work really well. 
but unfortunately, its original grand design, as it was explained to us, remember, I'm on the side of the sales, I'm on the sales side, not, not the reader side, but as it was explained to us, this was, this is where DC was going to go forward. Well, it's very evident at this point that all it is is a big old period on the end of a sentence. They're like, we're just wrapping this up and getting it done because we've already moved past this yeah. 10 times. Yeah. Like you said, uh, metal's is un- kind of the... Yeah, which is unfortunate. I, I hate to see it that way because I was excited for it as a project. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see big, large things come together like that. I, I mean, that's, you know, that's just impressive. Right. Well, to kind of wrap us up here, one thing sure. that we've been talking about is time. Everything, you know, whether it be eras or turnaround or binging or indulging. When it comes to comics... You, you know, we've talked about the time that goes into them. I think it's fascinating to me that there's a lot on that writer's plate of making a comic timely and timeless all at the same time because, you know, you want it to be relevant, but you don't necessarily, with pop culture, you know, with the 15-minute or what, 24-hour news cycle that we have now, some by the time it's on shelves that artist may not be, or when I say artist, like if you reference um, a Lady Gaga song or something. Sure, sure. No, I get what you're saying. So how do you think that approach should be, you know, when we look at the double shipping and the the trades and the collecting and everything like that, the announcement of a project versus when it actually, I mean, because there's, Black Label is a whole nother show we could do. (laughs) But even like that, you know, there was like the secret history of DC that never... Uh, do you think that with that binge culture, with that 24-hour news cycle, the, aside from putting pressure on the creators, does it also kind of hurt them And if they have a story they want to tell and all of a sudden, oh, that's not relevant anymore? You know, how how does that quick turnaround af- affect uh, that? I and mean, like I said, even from your point as far as, well, if they're writing a kiss a new kiss and archie series do i really want to put a lot of stock in that because people you know kiss may have been popular a year ago you know they announced a reunion tour but by the time the book comes out we have a weird dichotomy in the way comics are working right now just within these past three years or so comics are working on this this double plane comics have always been and probably always should be disposable. It's disposable entertainment. There's nothing wrong with disposable entertainment. And it's funny because we really, really, as a culture, now embrace disposable entertainment. There is no way... My kids, who are teenagers now, have zero concept of being able to watch everything on television. There was a time where, and it's a, it's, it is a bygone time, but you could essentially have watched everything on TV because there were only three channels. <laughs> things were syndicated. Things cycled over and over again. You eventually could consume it all. You really could. There's no way anybody could consume a fraction of what is now available to them at any given moment for visual entertainment or for 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 uh, you know audio entertainment for that matter with the number of podcasts uh with the number of of 
albums, songs, singles, everything that comes out, um, you just couldn't consume it all. So it's disposable. All of it is. Comics are no different, but at the same time, these past three years, we're hitting this era of the superhero explosion and kind of this this new discovery and love of comics, but the way that the publishers embraced it was instead of making their product disposable, instead of making it consumable and disposable, they tried, they went into that 90s era that you referenced before, and they tried to make it collectible. Not nostalgic, because that's different. Collectible. And in doing so, they are, comics are confused. They're really confused and really conflicted. So I think it does make it more difficult for a creator to go into it if they're trying to make a timeless story. But I think as soon as you try really hard to make a timeless story, a timeless classic, I personally am not a writer. I personally am not a creator. But if I were to get in the head of one, somebody who gets paid to do comics or books or teleplays or anything for a living, I would have to say that as soon as you sit down and go, I'm going to write the great American novel, it's a guarantee it will not become the great American novel. You just have to write your story as you know it, whether that story is because it's a personal project and something that means a lot to you, or whether it's because an editor said, hey, we need guy A to fight guy B, and we need it to end on top of a, of a rooftop in New York City. Okay, boss, you know, I mean, whether no matter what is leading you to write that story, um, you, you just write it, and you don't do it with the thought in mind of making it timeless. So if you look at 80s comics, John Byrne loved uh, to do costume design and hair design on all of his, his, his female characters. And yes, he very much dated those comics forever. Um, he liked his younger characters to say quippy, young, hip things to make them seem like they were, you know, uh, bucking authority, so to speak. And they're very outdated references, and I think they were outdated at that time. I think it still was. Is this what you think kids talk like in 1986? Because it's not quite working, but it was entertaining. It was creating a language in and of itself inside the comics, and I think that that's where those types of stories succeeded for the mainstream was anytime you tell the human condition in a setting of the, of your creation, a setting that's all your your own, and then you're consistent with, with what you're doing inside your own world, then I think people will will respond in kind. Um, but as soon as these creators, if that's what they're doing, trying to create timeless stories, then I, they're in for a world of hurt. Nothing is timeless anymore, even less so now than it was before. So yes, I do think it's difficult if that's your goal. But if your goal is, I'm just going to tell the best stories I get paid to tell so I can keep telling these stories, and I love these characters, and this is a really fun job, and I I hope to do it until the day I die, then man, more power to you. And I want, and that's the funny thing, I want comics to be seen as disposable entertainment. I need them to be seen as disposable entertainment. Because, right, we're in the business of constantly getting people to buy the next issue and to buy into the next story and to follow the next character. But we have this weird dichotomy of, no, comics are disposable, but at the same time they're collectible. So we have to hold on to all of this stuff that we're re that's really disposable entertainment. It's it's a Frankenstein that it doesn't know what it wants to be. And it not the publishers are confused, the stores we're confused, and the consumer is confused. We don't really know how to manage or handle it. 
Um, I know that people who have loved comics and bought comics and read comics for decades are con more confused now than they ever were because they don't know what the product is. Um, so it's very obvious that the reason they don't know what the product is is because the publishers are, are not telling them what the product mm -hmm. is. And I think if the publishers were to tell everybody, hey, you're reading some disposable material. This stuff is meant to be fun. This stuff is meant to be uh, consumed, uh, shared. And we're going to, and we, our job is to just keep telling fun stories, to just keep you engaged and keep you engulfed in these characters, these writers, and, and this world that we've created for you. Um, but I, you know, I, I, you know, maybe you'd have to explain to me where the need comes that we have to somehow hold on to it, that we have to like capture it in this, this timeless jar and we can't let it go. Um, it has to be let go. I mean, how else can we make room for new? I mean, we, we can't make room for new if all we're doing is holding on to the past. Um, classics are always classics for a reason. They have survived the filter of time. You know, the filter of time will always tell you what was good and, and what was just not trash, but disposable. It was fun for them. Well, cool. Yeah, I wish, I, I know my wife wishes comics were more physically disposable. <laughs> Well, and, I, and I'm not saying throw your comics away either, but the the idea that it's that that I I am all I'm a proponent of the idea that, and I think it's because the ease of digital. Um, so you think of music and movies, and I know that you, you you're one of those people. I'm going to assume that you own physical media, right? Oh yeah. Okay, so. But in the digital age and people that have, you know, cut the cord, eliminated People laugh all... at me when they find out that I have like 800 Blu-rays. So. Uh, and and that's fine. But the, in, that's that's in your DNA, though. Mm -hmm. Your DNA dictated that you need that physical media. And that's that's totally fine. The rest of the world, they some of them have decided that's just not for me. I don't have the room. I don't have the space. It's too expensive. You know, whatever the list of, of reasons may be. Now they're able to consume without the burden of the physicality of the of of the product and the the entertainment that's on it that's in there. Man, it's more disposable than ever as a result. Sharknado um, Eight, yeah. I mean, it's and and that's not a bad thing, but it's for a medium like comics that is so small, and I mean, comparatively speaking, it's tiny. Mm -hmm. um, to not quite know where it fits in that big giant juggernaut of disposable media entertainment um is kind of scary and i think that's why if you ever read if you're reading current reports or you talk to other people talk to people like myself and and you ever get the sense that comics are in trouble i think that's where they get the feeling from is because it's just this tiny tiny little fish in this massive massive ocean that is at risk of just being engulfed by the next giant you know, mammoth that's coming, uh, down the pike and comic, we just don't know where comics stand in that, in that big giant sea of, of entertainment, disposable entertainment. Well, I think part of the reason people hold, I know the reason one that I hold on to physical stuff is I have, I have VHSs that have never been put on DVD or Blu-ray or, <laughs> you know, I have DVDs that haven't been put on Blu-ray and stuff like that. And comics is, uh, you know, as much as we talked about, reprints and trades there's still a lot of stuff that sure and, doesn't get out and there. i don't question the desire i i absolutely 100 percent appreciate and understand uh 
the the collector gene. I get it. I mean, it, it for lack of a better word, you like to collect. You I'm like a hoarder. To, you I like mean, to gather. I, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not going to use the H word. Um, I, 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 <laughs> but on a on a non on a mental level, though, I think the reason, and especially comic fans, because they're notorious for it. If I don't hold on to that, like if I don't hold on to Ben Affleck being the best Batman, how can I tell you <laughs> that you're wrong for liking Val Kilmer? You know, I think that, that they hold on to it because that's that's that story resonated with them or they they liked it. And, you know, if you're going to sit here and tell me that Grant Morrison was the best X-Men writer. No, I'm going to sit here and tell you Chuck Austin was. <laughs> and it's because, you know, they they somewhere I think it resonates with them and it's it does what a story should do and it speaks to them and they hold on to it. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't kind of they hold on to it for too long and it gets sweaty and moldy and gross and, yeah but I, I mean i think that's one thing you see from them well and i think that maybe a, a little bit of the of the zen in me as i've grown older i because see i mean i get all of that it's where i came from i mean i've been around comics since i was a very small child and i've been around them in this capacity since i was a very very young child so i always saw this weird side of comics that you didn't just get just growing up reading them which i was always around the business of comics i'm one of the few there's not that many of us that actually grew up in that type of environment because most people that anybody who had parents that had stores in the 1970s didn't didn't necessarily grow up in the industry um so I saw it from from a lot of weird sides. So I appreciate and kind of grew up with some of those those same philosophies myself. As I'm older, as, as I, I have been exposed to so many different types of people that have loved comics, and I see uh, how they consume them, I'm I really am more of the mindset that, man, it's it's good for everybody, you know. Um, I'm okay with the people that are like, yeah, no, I read them and I throw them away or I give them away to the kids in the neighborhood. Awesome. And I'm also really cool with the people like, no, I've got every issue of this book and this is my favorite character and I love him so much. And it's there always... There may be people on our network that fall in that second well, category. <laughs> and it's always where I've learned throughout the ages. It's always where you cross that line. As long as you do what you do because it's, it's, it's what you enjoy and it makes you happy and, it, and it's how you love comics, that's great. As soon as you start telling somebody else how they should love comics, that's where you cross a lot of lines and you start making people angry. Right. Well, and that that goes beyond comics too. I think with any anything, but that's I think that's a, a good stopping point, Robert. I want to thank you so much. You know, as always, it's a lot of fun getting to hear the insights and how you know we on this side of the table we stress what character is going to die or whatever. But on that side, you know, hearing about, okay, well, what book's going to die or what's going to happen here? It's always really neat to see. And uh, we, it won't be two years, I promise, before, yeah, before right. you come back. Anytime. But, yeah, thank you so much. Um, if you're in Lubbock, if you're in West Texas, if you're alive, come to Lubbock, <laughs> Texas, and come check out Star Comics in their nice, pretty, newer location. And, uh, yeah, Robert, again, thank you so very much. Thank you, Lance. I really appreciate it. So there you go. Um, all sorts of things that not only did we cover a lot of things, but we definitely planted some seeds of conversations that we're going to have again in the future. Um, I can't wait to 
sit down and talk more. I always enjoy talking to Robert. He's just a, a wealth of knowledge, and it's it's a blast. I appreciate all that he does for me and for the show and everything. So make sure you check out Star Comics online. Find him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everywhere. You can also find us on all those platforms. Just look for The Night Nerd. Or you can email me, nightnerd at thenightnerd.com. But otherwise, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Together we made it. Shit, we did it, nigga.